The quaint little town of Truro, Massachusetts is in many ways representative of the old Cape Cod, where fishing is still a way of life and the community of about 1600 remains closely knit. The town's charm and its naturally rugged beauty is the very thing that lures thousands of affluent city dwellers to the area during the summer months. Truro is a place where people go to escape the grind of city life. Few could imagine anything really horrible happening in such an idyllic place. However, on January 26, 2002, perceptions were drastically altered. That Saturday at around 4.30 p.m., children's book author Tim Arnold, 45, and his father, Bob Arnold, drove next door to their neighbor's secluded bungalow on Depot Road. Tim was hoping that his former girlfriend, Krista Worthington, 46, would be home because he wanted to return a flashlight he borrowed from her. When he approached the house, he immediately noticed that something was terribly wrong. The door to the house looked as if someone had broken in. He peered into the house to get a closer look. To Tim's horror, he saw Krista lying in a pool of blood on the kitchen floor with her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Ava, crying and clinging to her body. Ava must have been relieved to see Tim because she quickly reached up for him. According to Tim, the little girl told him that her mommy fell down. Even though Ava was in shock and covered in her mother's blood, she was physically unhurt. But her mother was dead. Tim took Ava outside to the car, where his father was waiting. Hoping to spare her further trauma, Tim spelled out to his father that he thought Krista was D-E-A-D. Still reeling in disbelief, Tim called the police and informed them of his grisly find. It didn't take long for the authorities to converge on the scene. Detectives quickly realized that Krista's death was not the result of an accident. She was brutally murdered. Krista's death sent shockwaves throughout the community, which quickly reverberated across the nation. Many couldn't believe that anyone could be so evil as to murder someone, especially in front of her own child. An investigation was quickly launched in the hopes of finding out precisely what happened to Krista and who killed her. It would be another three years before the truth was revealed. From early on, Krista was determined to make her mark in the world. She was ambitious, creative, and highly intelligent. She came by in honestly. Her mother, Gloria, was a talented painter, and her father, Christopher Toppy, was a former assistant attorney general of Massachusetts and a prosecutor. During her childhood, Krista lived with her family in Hingham, but every summer they would flee to Truro, where they had a cottage. Krista had a special place in her heart for the town, but it would be a while before she would spend any significant length of time there. She had places to go and things to do. After high school, she attended Vassar College, where she studied English. She graduated with honors in 1977 and immediately embarked on a career as an editor for Cosmopolitan in Manhattan before landing a job at Women's Wear Daily. Krista was later sent to Paris at the age of 26 as a fashion reporter for sister publication W Magazine, where her social life was thrown into high gear. Krista was invited to many big events, from polo matches to fashion shows to formal balls thrown by European royalty, and she immersed herself in her work. Soon she earned a position as acting bureau chief at W during the 1980s, but she didn't stay there long. Krista moved to London, where she began to work as a freelance journalist for The Independent of London. She eventually moved back to Manhattan and wrote celebrity profiles and fashion articles for such publications as Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Elle, The Los Angeles Times, and The New York Times, writing celebrity profiles and fashion articles. Krista's career had soared to new heights 
but she was not content in her personal life. Krista longed to have children, but she was nearing her late thirties and was unmarried. She decided not to wait for Mr. Wright and instead tried to get pregnant by artificial insemination. It didn't turn out to be as easy as she thought. In fact, she learned from doctors that she was infertile, which was a devastating blow to her. At around the same time, Krista learned that her mother was dying of cancer. She immediately took leave from her job and moved to Hingham to take care of her. Not long after she moved, she heard some more disturbing news. Krista discovered that her father was having an affair with a woman almost half a century his junior. Cosmopolitan reporter Vanessa Gregoriadis quoted a friend of Krista's who said, Even though things between her parents had long ago become something like a separation where the couple still lives together, Krista saw her dad's affair as a betrayal. The article further stated that she decided to take some distance from the situation by moving to her deceased grandmother's home in Truro. It was a choice that would have life-altering consequences. Not long after her move to Truro, Krista began a relationship with a shellfish constable and married father of six, Tony Jacket, 51. The affair lasted off and on for around two years. Then, in 1998, what Krista would later describe as a miracle happened. She learned that she was pregnant. When Tony was informed about the pregnancy, he was deeply concerned that it would spell doom for his marriage. An article in the Boston Herald quoted Tony, who said, I wasn't looking to end my marriage, but I am human. It was her choice to have the baby. Consequently, he ended his relationship with Krista. Not long afterward, Krista became involved with Tim Arnold. Tim was quoted in the Boston Herald, saying that he thought she was really intelligent and sometimes caustic and quick and witty, just really full of life. However, the relationship did not last because Krista believed they were incompatible. They remained good friends. Tragedy struck in May 1999, when Krista's mother died after a long battle with colon cancer. Four days later, Krista gave birth to a beautiful baby girl that she named Ava Gloria Worthington after her deceased mother. It was a bittersweet time that in many ways marked a new phase in Krista's life. After her mother's death and Ava's birth, Krista decided not to return to Manhattan, but instead to stay in Truro. She had just inherited a house there and money from a trust fund, which made her less dependent on work and able to spend more time with the baby. Friends thought that Krista had truly found contentment in Truro, staying home with her little girl and watching the seasons pass from the small windows of her wood-shingled bungalow. Krista's happy life would come to an abrupt end just a couple of years later. Her death would spark an investigation, which would eventually involve a list of suspects ranging from the mistress of Krista's father to Tim Arnold and Tony Jacket. The medical examiner determined that Krista died from a single stab wound to the heart. Defensive wounds on her body, such as trauma to the head and abrasions to the arms and legs, also indicated a struggle. Most importantly, there was clear evidence that Krista had sexual intercourse before her death. Investigators collected DNA samples from her body, hoping to find out the identity of her killer. Several items were missing from her house, including a wireless Panasonic phone, her ID, and credit cards. Her purse and car keys were found in the driveway. It is not clear if Ava witnessed the murder or was elsewhere in the house when it happened. What is certain is that she was on her own for around 24 to 36 hours, the length of time between Krista's death and the discovery of her body. During that time, 
the two-and-a-half-year-old was able to sustain herself by suckling from her mother's corpse and eating cereal, which she found in the cupboard. At some point, Ava, too young to understand her mother's condition, tried to revive her mother with a drink from her sippy cup. Realizing that there was little evidence to work on, investigators began interviewing those who knew Krista, hoping to find new information that might provide more insight into her death. The police were especially interested in conducting interviews with Elizabeth Porter, the mistress of Krista's father, Tony Jacket, and Tim Arnold. What investigators discovered was a series of complex relationships that put some of the individuals in a more questionable light. Cape Cod District Attorney Michael O'Keefe was quoted as saying that Krista was an equal opportunity employer. She'd expletive the husbands of her female friends, the butcher or the banker. The remark outraged Krista's family. Nonetheless, it became increasingly clear that there were a lot of people who knew Krista that could have had a motive to kill her. Whether any of them actually did was another question, one that the police had yet to answer. One of the first to be questioned by police was Tony Jacket, because his relationship with Krista could have destroyed his marriage, which investigators believed was a motive to kill. Also, Krista was trying to obtain child support from him, which could have put a considerable financial strain on his family. But Tony repeatedly denied having anything to do with the murder and explained to police that his wife already knew about the affair at the time of Krista's death and had forgiven him. Moreover, he was willing to formalize the parenting agreement, meaning that he recognized Ava as his daughter and was willing to provide child support. But the main thing that vindicated Tony was the fact that his DNA didn't match that taken from the crime scene. Once Tony was no longer a person of interest, investigators then turned their attention to Tim. He was likely suspected because he once dated Krista and even lived with her briefly before she ended the relationship. The breakup could have been seen as motive enough to kill. Tim also had brain surgery shortly before the murder, which could have caused investigators to question if he was mentally stable at that time. Tim, who professed his innocence from the beginning, was keenly aware that he was a key suspect in the murder case and was deeply troubled about it. Tim was so distressed by the investigation and the murder of his friend that he even tried to take his life, resulting in him being hospitalized for a brief period. It was a relief when investigators learned that his DNA didn't match the DNA obtained from the crime scene. Police also had their eye on Elizabeth Porter, 29, the girlfriend of Krista's father. Elizabeth was a known heroin addict. Krista believed she was sponging money off her father. One theory is that Elizabeth could have been manipulating Krista's father, who was co-executor of the estate and trust fund his daughter was to inherit, in order to get the money for herself. If so, it could have been a motive enough to kill. Elizabeth also caught investigators' attention because she had been previously linked to another murder case a little more than a year before Krista's death. At one point, Elizabeth had offered sexual services to Dirk Greinader, a Boston allergist, who was later convicted of killing his wife. Elizabeth was a key witness at the trial, but was never implicated in the actual murder. Even though Elizabeth had a troubled background, investigators in Krista's case just couldn't find enough evidence to link her to the murder. The fact that the evidence found at the crime scene suggested a male attacker eventually led to Elizabeth's exclusion as a suspect. Thus, investigators were forced to look elsewhere. One of the places they hoped to find answers was in the State Crime Laboratory in Sudbury, where DNA samples were sent and processed. 
three years after Krista's murder, investigators decided to take drastic measures. They collected swab samples of as many Truro men as possible, hoping that they would find a genetic match with the evidence found at the crime scene. Hundreds of men volunteered to help out in the case by offering their DNA, but many also refused because the sample collection was not mandatory. Some of the area residents argued that the entire process of collecting swabs was unnecessary since it was unlikely that the murderer would willingly volunteer evidence that would later implicate him. Furthermore, the crime lab had not yet finished processing all of the DNA samples taken from the original suspects because their resources were overtaxed and they had not had enough time to examine them. Thus, it made little sense to overburden them even more with hundreds of new samples. It was clear that the state was desperate to show that they were still working hard on the case and trying to find the killer, regardless of how irrational some found their methodology to be. After all the fuss, the crime lab never got a chance to process the new samples. Surprisingly, an earlier sample obtained in March 2004 turned out to be a genetic match with semen collected at the crime scene. It was the big break investigators were hoping for in a three-year-long investigation. The man who voluntarily provided the police with the DNA sample was identified as Christopher M. McCowan, 33, a garbage collector who worked in Krista's neighborhood at around the time of her death. Investigators were interested in testing McCowan because he had a lengthy criminal record. His previous record included several restraining orders on Cape Cod involving five women, and he had even served time in a Florida prison for a variety of other offenses. Some of those offenses included car theft and burglary. As more facts emerged, investigators discovered that three years before McCowan gave the sample, he was actually interviewed by police concerning the crime. However, he didn't provide a DNA sample then and managed to elude police by moving frequently within a two-year period. The police finally caught up with him and were able to finally obtain his DNA, but it took another year for the sample to be processed and matched to that taken from Krista. On April 14, 2005, the police arrested McCowan at his home in Hyannis. He was charged with first-degree murder, aggravated rape, and armed assault. The Associated Press quoted Michael O'Keefe, who said that, Investigators certainly have a motive, although they refuse to state what it is. McCowan, who pleaded innocent to the charges in Orleans District Court, was held without bail. It was not clear when the case will go to trial, but in the meantime, Krista's family refused to sit back and wait. They sued McCowan and Cape Cod Disposal Company for $10 million for employing McCowan even though he had a criminal record. The report suggested that compensation, if awarded, would likely go to Ava. On April 14, 2005, the police arrested McCowan at his home in Hyannis. He was then charged with first-degree murder, aggravated rape, and armed assault. The Associated Press quoted District Attorney Michael O'Keefe, who said that investigators had a motive. Initially, investigators refused to disclose what McCowan's motive was or any related information obtained during his nearly seven-hour-long interrogation by troopers. However, when the information blockade was eventually removed, what was revealed did more to confuse than clarify the events surrounding McCowan's alleged role in the murder. During the first part of his interrogation, McCowan said that he never met Krista or visited her house, except to pick up garbage on his regular route. Then, when further interviewed by Trooper Christopher Mason, McCowan's story began to change. 
The turning point of the interview came when he handed the suspect a state crime laboratory report matching his DNA to semen and saliva found on the victim's body, which prompted McCowan to admit that, it could have been me. During McCowan's interrogation, he offered eight increasingly incriminating versions of the crime, most of which included his having had consensual sex with Krista, which he described in great detail. Even though his story changed significantly throughout the interview, he was consistent in one thing, that the murderer was not him, but a purported drug dealer and friend, Jeremy Frazier. During a pretrial hearing, McCowan stuck to his story and pleaded innocent to the charges against him. He was held without bail while awaiting trial. The McCowan murder trial began at the Barnstable Superior Court of Massachusetts on October 18, 2006, and was presided over by Justice Gary Nickerson. The trial kicked off with opening statements made by the lead prosecutor and assistant district attorney Robert Welsh III, who stated that he would prove that McCowan was the sole perpetrator in the rape and murder of Krista in January 2002. The prosecution contended that the DNA match recovered from the crime scene, along with McCowan's confession to police of having had sex with Krista before beating her up, was enough evidence to implicate him in the murder. However, the defense team, led by attorney Robert George, claimed during opening statements that racial prejudice and a botched investigation led to the unjust arrest of McCowan, who was one in a long line of men suspected of having been involved in Krista's murder. The defense team claimed that the murder scene was compromised by the large number of responders who trampled over the scene, that investigators refused to consider the possibility that McCowan, a black garbage hauler, had a consensual sexual relationship with the white Vassar-educated victim, which could explain the McCowan DNA at the scene, and that McCowan had been coerced into making a damaging statement to police on the night of his arrest. Moreover, they stated that McCowan's statements made during his interrogation should be discounted because he was mentally unable to understand the severity of the situation, due to his low IQ of 78, and the fact that he was under the influence of prescription painkillers and marijuana, during the interview. One of the first witnesses to take the stand during the opening of the trial was Krista's cousin, Jan Worthington, 54, the first rescue worker to respond to the 911 call. She said in her testimony that when she arrived at the scene, she was shocked to find Krista dead on the floor between the kitchen and the hallway of her home. She claimed that she immediately surmised that the death was a homicide, prompting her to call for backup. While Jan was on the stand, the defense team questioned her about the crime scene and whether she may have disturbed evidence. There were contradictory reports made by John. At one time, she told a reporter that she touched Krista's body to feel a pulse, and an even earlier admission made to police where she said she freaked out upon seeing the body and never touched or even approached it. Jan claimed that the accurate version of events was the one given to a reporter, an account that had been filmed for an HBO documentary in which she was also professionally involved. The credibility of Jan's testimony was called into question because of the deal she struck up with HBO, who was filming the court proceedings, and Lifetime, which covered the murder in a documentary and teleplay. Jan claimed to be netting close to $60,000. The defense argued that she was exploiting her cousin by profiting from her murder. Even though Jan admitted to profiting, she said that she was mainly trying to protect Krista's image. Tim Arnold, Krista's ex-boyfriend, also took the stand early on in the trial and described the scene as he first saw it, upon entering Krista's house on the day in question. 
He talked about the mental stress he endured after finding her body and after being named as a main suspect in the murder case, which eventually led him to attempt to take his life and his admittance to a psychiatric hospital. He claimed that he was repeatedly questioned by investigators but adamantly denied having any involvement in her death. Ryan reported that the defense team tried to draw parallels between Arnold's interrogation, where he was outright blamed for the murder, and McCowan's seven-hour interrogation by the same two officers, who the defense suggested used coercive techniques to elicit a false confession. Reverting back to evidence that supported their argument that the crime scene was contaminated by first responders, the defense team questioned paramedic Jeffrey Francis, who claimed that he and one of his co-workers moved Worthington's body in an attempt to resuscitate her. However, after realizing she was deceased, they covered her body with a nearby blanket because she was nude and it was, as Francis said, a decency thing, out of respect to the victim. The defense suggested that by covering the body with the blanket from which DNA was later extracted, the first responders had compromised the crime scene and possibly destroyed vital evidence. During the trial, the prosecution downplayed the possibility of first responders contaminating the crime scene, suggesting that any disruption was minimal and did not detract from the fact that McCowan's DNA was still found on the victim. One of the most anticipated witnesses expected to take the stand during the trial was Ava, who was two at the time of her mother's death and seven at the time of the trial. However, she would never take the stand. Instead, jurors heard testimony from state police detective Kimberly Squire, who interviewed Ava shortly after she was found unharmed and clinging to her mother's body. According to Squire, Ava likely never witnessed the murder. If she had, there was a significant chance that her memory of the event would be deemed unreliable evidence based on her age and the amount of time that passed between the murder and the trial. Into the second week of the trial, jurors heard more gruesome testimony from pathologist Dr. Henry Neilds, who testified about Krista's autopsy. He claimed that by the time the medical examiner began his investigation, she was probably been dead for a day or a day and a half and was unable to give a precise time of death. Neilds told jurors that Krista had defensive wounds on her hands and that she also had cuts and bruises on her torso and face, as well as blunt force trauma to her head. The fatal blow was from a stab wound from a knife to her left lung that was delivered with such force that the one-inch-wide blade that pierced her actually nicked the floor below her. Neilds testified that because there was no evidence of trauma to Worthington's genitalia, it was not certain whether a sexual assault took place, even though McCowan's sperm was found at the scene. Despite McCowan's DNA being discovered on and near Krista, interestingly enough, his fingerprints were not. State Police Lieutenant Monty Gillardi testified. Of the nine finger and palm prints lifted from inside Worthington's cluttered Truro home, from various items secured from the house and from her car parked outside, none were McCowan's. Moreover, none of the prints were found to belong to the emergency responders who came to the house. Later testimony by DNA examiner Christine Lemire revealed that Krista also had the DNA of at least three unidentified men under the fingernails of her right hand, genetic profiles that also did not match McCowan's. The big question that many wondered about was whether some of the DNA belonged to Frazier, the man who McCowan blamed for the murder, or someone else. During his interrogation, McCowan provided troopers with contradicting accounts of what happened around the time Krista was murdered. He said that he was intoxicated on the night of her death and 
couldn't remember much that occurred, including whether or not he had sex with Krista. He later recanted and said that he did have sex with her, although it was consensual. The man who interviewed McCowan after his arrest, State Trooper Christopher Mason, told jurors that McCowan then began to describe how he and his friend Frazier drove from a bar to Krista's house to have sex with her, even though he claimed earlier that he never knew her. McCowan said that when he arrived at Krista's house, she willingly consented to sex with him. But during that time, she became fearful that Frazier, who had wandered into her home office, was stealing from her. He then claimed that after Krista confronted him, Frazier beat her up. In later testimony, McCowan admitted to also beating Krista up, and that at some point, Frazier stabbed her. His story of Frazier murdering Krista was the only account that remained consistent throughout his interview. Yet was there evidence to back it up? Based on the prominent role Frazier played in McCowan's testimony and the fact that DNA and handprints from other men were obtained from the crime scene, it was not surprising that Frazier became a second person of interest in the trial. In the hopes of finding out the truth of his involvement or lack thereof, Frazier was asked to take the stand. During his much-anticipated testimony, Frazier claimed that he had no part in Krista's murder and was at least 13 miles away at the time it was alleged to have occurred. According to Frazier, he was at a house party where he drank all night and brawled with a group of men before going home with a friend to sleep off the alcohol. Several witnesses attested to seeing Frazier at the party and driving home with his friend. McCowan was also seen at the party that night, although no one remembered seeing him as the evening progressed. Frazier had an alibi. Moreover, the prints that were found at the scene of the crime, as well as the DNA, did not match Frazier's hand and fingerprints or his genetic profile. Interestingly, the identities of those who left behind the prints and DNA at the crime scene remained unknown. Nevertheless, the jury's focus landed back on McCowan, who was beyond doubt with Krista, near or at the time of her murder. Several more witnesses who testified before closing arguments were finally heard from both sides. The prosecution once again contended that the evidence undeniably proved McCowan was the sole culprit in the murder. The defense argued that the investigation was botched from the start and that a lot of evidence remained untested, leaving the possibility that there may have been another person involved in the crime. Finally, on November 7, 2006, jurors deliberated on the case. After breaking through a temporary deadlock and the dismissal of one juror for talking to her jailed boyfriend about the case during deliberations, a verdict had been reached. On November 17, 2006, more than a week after deliberations began, the jury announced to the court that they found McCowan guilty of robbery, rape, and the first-degree murder of Krista. Tears immediately sprung into McCowan's eyes as other family members from McCowan's and Krista's families wept. Krista's cousin Mary said in a statement, This is about a little girl losing her mother in the most heinous way imaginable. It is about the loss of a loving, vibrant woman. There will never be closure because Krista is never coming back to us. McCowan had told the judge that he did not murder Krista, although he felt sorry for the victim's family and that he never meant for this to ever take place. He was further quoted as saying, Throughout this whole trial I sat and would think to myself, Why me? I am an innocent man in this case. McCowan was eventually sentenced to life in prison, with no parole, at the Massachusetts Correctional Institution at Cedar Junction in Walpole. In December 2010, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court denied an appeal for a new trial.